Hi, well, welcome everybody. So happy to see so many of you here today. We are starting a new series today called You Are What You Eat. And I'm going to tell you right up front that I'm very excited for this series because this is one of the topics that I find myself very, very passionate about in life. And I hope by the end of this series that I'll have convinced you that you should be passionate about what I'm going to speak about as well. Because what we're going to talk about here in this series is based on a very, very simple verse which comes from Scripture, which our Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. One of the first things that he said when he started his public ministry in the Scripture, it says in Matthew 4, 4, that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Recently, I found myself doing something strange. I find myself spending a lot of time inside the fridge, staring, examining, hoping, praying, but always going back, feeling unsatisfied. Part of the reason is because now we're in Lent, okay, and when we're in Lent, we, we abstain, you know, from certain types of food. We go vegan, we don't eat meat, we don't eat uh, chicken, hot dogs, like all the beautiful things that God has given to us in creation. We abstain from all these things, and, you know, I, I try my best also to cut back, like, on the sweets, you know, as much as I can. It's like a healthy thing, and, you know, I figure I try to do a little bit every now and then. But my problem is, is those are the two, like, bookends of my meal. They usually start every meal, including breakfast. Anything starts with some kind of meat, okay, egg, chicken. Like, I will start with the meat, then I always wrap up with the sweet. And right now, I'm trying to go without this and without this. So many times, I find myself... And it's not that I didn't eat, by the way. It's not that I look in, don't find anything, and I'm, I'm hungry. It's that I ate, but just, you know, you ate, but you're just not feeling it. So you go back in, and then you stare, and then there's nothing. And then you have this idea that maybe somehow the food fairy, my wife, somehow filled the fridge in the last hour with some all kinds of new goodies that will satisfy me. And you spend all day staring, and you end up finding nothing to satisfy you. I think that picture that I just described is how a lot of us, if our souls could speak, that's what they would say. If our souls could draw a picture, that's what our souls would say. Because what we do is we spend all day doing a bunch of stuff, and then our soul is like, but I'm hungry. And you say, no, 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 we're going to go to work right now. Okay, but I'm, I'm hungry. You didn't give me something good to eat. They say, no, 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 don't worry. We're going to watch this show on the TV. We're going to spend some time on Facebook. And your soul is screaming, okay. But I'm hungry, and I don't feel satisfied. And you didn't give me any meat, and you didn't give me any sweet. And a lot of us, if you asked our soul to describe the state that it's in, nourishment-wise, it would say we're malnourished. This is why we're confused. This is why we struggle to make decisions. This is why we find ourselves at all times unsure of what we should do or where we should go. Or this feeling that something is just missing in life is because our souls are telling us we're not satisfied. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus gave a comparison of the food for your body and then the food for your spirit. He said, do not labor for the food which perishes. That's your hot dogs. That's your chicken nuggets. That's your uh, sandwiches. Those are the food which perishes. But for the food which endures to everlasting life. You see, I believe this. That for those who are members of the church and going through this Lenten period, or even if you're not a member of the church, but you're just in this time of Lent, you're trying to, to give up stuff and trying to, 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 to not feed your body as much. Look here. If all we do during this time is starve our bodies, then we truly are the most pathetic people on the planet. 
truly. If all that we do is we starve our bodies and we think, yeah, I did something good, I starved my body, then truly we are the most pathetic and pitiable people on this planet. The goal is never to starve the body. The goal is to feed the soul. And during this time of Lent, yes, we should be. We should be fasting. I'm not saying that we, I'm not telling you not to do that stuff. But what I'm saying is that's not the goal. That's a means to an end. While we are fasting in the body, we should be feasting in the spirit. And that's where it comes to the word of God, which we should live by. And that's the point of this series. We want to get to the point we're going to get, this is our theme verse right here. Jeremiah 15, 16. Read this with me. We're going to memorize, we're going to say it every week, and you're all going to memorize this verse by the end of the series. Read it with me. It says, your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I did not hear everybody. What are you all, sleepy this morning? I'm in a good mood today. You're in a good mood? We got another snowstorm coming tomorrow. It's the end of the world, all right? <laughs> Let's enjoy today. It's 50 degrees today. It's going to be a snowpocalypse tomorrow. Let's live up and enjoy. Say this like you mean it. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. It is our goal that by the end of this series in six weeks that we can internalize this and we can say this, that we get to the end of our day and we say the sweetest part of my day was when I had your word. And the best thing that I ate that satisfied me was your word. And the day that I didn't eat your word, I feel empty and I know why. I'm not trying to tell you, believe me, I struggle just as much as every single person here. Underneath this black, you see the same flesh, same skin, same problems. We all got the same problems. One of the things I've realized is the most important time of my day is my time in the word of God. And I'm not saying there isn't a day that I miss it. I'm not saying it like that. I wish. But what I'm saying is there are very, very, very few days that I get to the end of it and I did not find some way to insert the word of God in my life. Not because I'm a saint, not because I'm the greatest person in the world, but because I realize that this is the real food. And my soul is hungry when I'm not eating this. Just like everyone, it's very rare that you get to the end of the day and you didn't feed your body in some way. It's very rare that you just were so busy that you forgot to eat. You may have postponed eating. You may have eaten quickly. But there's never a day that you get to the end of it that you didn't find some way to feed your body. Well, I come to the realization that the most important part of my day is when I feed my soul. And that's my time in the Bible. Because, like the series title says, you are what you eat. You feed your body junk, you are junk. You feed your spirit junk, you're just equally as junk. But that's eternal junk. But when you feed your spirit, the good stuff, the real stuff, you find your spirit healthy. You find that joy. You find that rejoicing. And that's the purpose of this series, You Are What You Eat. But first things first. We need to get something out of the way today so that we can continue the rest of this series and benefit from it. The question that we need to answer here today is the most important question when it comes to the Bible, which is, can I really trust the Bible? A lot of people will tell you not to trust the Bible and will tell you to question a lot of things about the Bible. And the truth of the matter is, you see me, you come here every week, and I stand up here and I say all these great things, but all of them are based on the Bible. All of them are verses coming from the, I said, Jesus said this, so the Bible says this. So if, if the Bible isn't accurate and the Bible isn't reliable, then everything that I, you hear me say, all that falls apart. All of Christianity falls apart if the Bible itself is not accurate and reliable as the word of God and as who, what it claims to be. That's what a lot of people say. Like, come on, man. You're an intelligent person. You really believe, you really believe 
like uh, uh, Noah and the flood. Like, come on, man. You really believe that stuff? Come on. Jonah, a fish, swallowed a man, came out three days later out the front end, not out the back end. <laughs> come on. Like, this is stuff we tell the kids. These are fairy tales. This is like, like the, the, the tortoise and the hare or like a little engine that could. These are nice things that we tell kids. They teach good lessons, but come on. No intelligent person would believe this stuff. I got news for you. Anyone who says that, today I'm be careful, okay, because I could, okay, explode at some point in time today. But anyone who says that, the first thing that you respond is you say Jesus, who was a pretty smart guy. The, all the stories that the people doubt most in the Bible, the three top stories people doubt, Noah, Jonah, Sodom, and Gomorrah, right? Those are the three that people say, no way that could happen. All three of those, Jesus made a point to speak about every single one of those. So Jesus believed very strongly in those. And he didn't believe in them as, as tales, but he believed them specifically. He said, just like it was for Noah and the flood, it's going to be for you. And he said, just like it was Sodom and Gomorrah, it's going to be for these people. And he said, just like Jonah was, it's going to be for the Son of Man. So anyone who questions those stories, go talk with Jesus, because Jesus did not question those stories at all. But anyway, I'll try to calm myself down, right? Let's go through this systematically. But that's what we're going to try to get to. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is given that we might be complete, that we might be nourished inside our spirits and inside our souls. And the reason why it is nourishment for the soul is because what it says in the beginning there, it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration of God... The Greek word for it is, you see it on your handout, is theonoustos. Say that with me. Say it after me. Theonoustos. Theo means God. Noustos means breath. Very good. Whoever said that, breath. Because other translations will translate that literally, like literally, inspiration of God literally means God breathed or breathed by God. Because when you read the scripture, when you read the Bible, you are not reading normal words. You are hearing the breath of God. Here I am, I'm speaking. You are hearing something in your ear. What you are hearing is the breath of Father Anthony. You're hearing my breath because what's my voice? My voice, okay, is my breath from somewhere in there, comes up, shakes my vocal cords, and sound comes out. So the vocal cords aren't, are just... The breath is what's coming. When breath is coming through, it makes a sound. So when you're hearing me right now, you are hearing Father Anthony breathed words. You are hearing my breath come out of me and, and come through my vocal cords and make a sound that you can comprehend. When you read the scripture, it is the breath of God coming through vocal cords, which are the writers of the scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, the Jeremiah, Isaiah. The writers of scripture are the vocal cords where God breathes and his word comes out in comprehensible, understandable words that me and you can read. The Bible is not good stories, good ideas. The Bible is God-breathed stories, God-breathed ideas. And we have to make sure that we understand that. Now, as soon as I say that, I want to stop you from going off the cliff. There's, we never want to go off like to extremes. One extreme is that the Bible is man-made. Okay, the other extreme, which is equally as dangerous, is this idea, okay, so how did God inspire, and how was the Bible written? Is it that God, like, came down to uh, uh, Isaiah, and he says, um, 
write an A here, and then a B here, and then a C here. And God gave him letter by letter, word for word, right to write? No, we don't believe that. Christianity does not believe that. Some people think we do, but we do not. That's called letter inspiration. We do not believe in letter inspiration. That's what, like, the Quran, that's what Quran is, okay? Other religions say that, which is God came down, grabbed you, and said, write exactly this. That's not what we believe. We don't believe that the text, we don't believe that the, the paper and the ink is inspired by God. What is inspired by God? The person. God inspires people. God took Moses, took him up on top of a mountain. Moses was up there for 40 days. Moses came back down after that time and wrote down what he saw and wrote down what he experienced. And God told him some things, write this down. That's true. Some things God did say that, exactly like that. Write this down. But there's a lot of other things God didn't tell him to write down. But he's writing down his experience with God. We don't believe in letter inspiration. We believe in people inspiration. We believe that people experience God and they reach a point where God is working and they are experiencing and then they come down and they write it down for us so that we can then reach the same experience that they reached. Why it's important to say that, because if you believe in the letter inspiration, you can get yourself into some trouble. Because there's some things in the Bible, and what I'm about to say now is sound like it's going to contradict what I'm going to say later, but it's not, if you listen to me all the way through. There's some things in the Bible which are inaccurate. And I know I say that and some people go, <laughs> no, there's some things that aren't. There's some things, they're not wrong, but they're not 100% accurate. For example, I'll give you an easy example. Okay, nobody jump. There's a piece in the scripture where it talks about um, Luke, okay, is giving the gospel narrative. And he says about a certain king who lived at a certain time, and he dated a certain event as the third year of the reign of so-and-so. And historians later figured out that it was actually the fifth year. Does that mean that the Bible is not, is, we throw the Bible away and say, look, the Bible's inaccurate? No, that just means, that actually, to me, actually proves its accuracy more. It proves the reliability more because it shows that it is a human being who had an experience with God, who came down and wrote his experience, but you know what? He was never men meaning to write a history book or write a science book. What he was meaning to do is write about his experience with God. So as far as the experience with God, it is 100% accurate. But is the Bible 100% accurate in terms of the history and the name and stuff like that? No, sometimes people make mistakes. I'll give you another example. I stand up here and I give a sermon. Actually, I just did this recently, like a few months ago. I stood up here and I gave a sermon about, I don't remember what it was about, but I used an example of like a medical thing. I talked about jaundice. Y'all remember that one? Okay. Several people came to me afterwards and said the example you gave about jaundice was 100% incorrect medically. 100%. And everyone who was a doctor at the time was laughing at me because I'm up here talking about jaundice and this is a thing on your ear and I'm saying all this stuff. And I gave some analogy. Okay, and apparently it was wrong. Does that negate everything that I wrote or everything that I said? No, I didn't, never claimed to be a doctor. I was speaking about, let's say, it was, uh, let's say it was about faith. I'm speaking about faith. And what I said about faith is right. And I used this example. And it was a bad example. I used the wrong example. That doesn't negate what I wrote about faith or what I said about faith. So it's the same thing. The Bible's not given to be. So we're, we're not going to trip up on this stuff. The Bible has this one thing right here that isn't, okay, that's okay. It was never given to be a history book or a science book. Now, with that said, I'm going to talk later about the relationship in a little bit between Bible and science, all right? And you're going to see how I complete this picture, so just hold on with me there until we get there. But my point is, what is Scripture? 
Scripture is the breath of God coming through men. It is God breathing, shaking vocal cords, which are people, and then them writing it down for us about their experience. That's why for us, I say this, the Bible, again, when I say the Bible, I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about the paper, okay, or the ink. I'm talking about the Bible for us. We don't say the Bible. We say, as you see right there, it's actually written, the Holy Bible. And we kiss the Bible. We honor the Bible. We don't use it as a coaster, okay? It's one of my pet peeves when I come in someone's house and I see something. We don't put stuff. I, I'm, I'm not saying it's like, I'm not being legalistic, but I don't like to put stuff on top of my Bible. I don't like it. I put my Bible on top of everything, okay? I like it that way. Because this, I honor what's in here as the word of God. And, I'm not, and again, I'm not trying to be like, I, I, I make like an idol, but if I had a letter which is precious to me, let's say a letter that my wife wrote and tell me like, you know, like nice stuff, okay? I'm not gonna use that as a coaster. I'm not gonna get a little ring or like, uh, there's something valuable to me. This is a letter from God. This is God breathed. No, we honor it. We kiss it. We call it the Holy Bible. We raise it up during our church services and there's times that we lift up the gospel. Sometimes you see that silver gospel if you're here. We lift it up to let everyone know that right now is a sacred time when we're reading the scripture, the breath of God. God is speaking to us through his word. But the problem is, everything that I just said is really nice, but the problem is if you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, that it is accurate, that it is reliable, none of the stuff that it says has any value to you. What we're going to talk about right now is we want to be able to answer the question, can I trust the Bible? Is the Bible really accurate? Is it all that it claims to be in that, and that you, you're saying, Father Anthony, you claim that the Bible, okay, is really the Bible accurate the way it is? Or is, or, or, or is it just like fables? Is it just for simple-minded people, for ignorant people, for foolish people? Or can we really trust it as the word of God? I'll tell you this. First Peter chapter 1, verse 24 says this. It says, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and his flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. There has never been a book in the history of all mankind that has been attacked more than the Bible, that has been dissected, that has been ridiculed, that has been persecuted, and many people have given their lives trying to protect this book, and many people have been killed trying to protect it, and many people have walked the face of this earth and said, I'm wiping this book off the face of the earth. And despite all those attempts, do you know what the number one best-selling book in history is? You know what the number one most translated book is? You know the number one book that you can find anywhere in the universe, even in places where it's not allowed. You didn't even go to a hotel, you open the thing up and you find it right there, is the Bible. Why? Because things come and go. Lies come and go. But the word of the Lord endures forever. There was a guy named Voltaire. Y'all ever heard of this guy? He was a French uh, philosopher guy or whatever he was. And he said... He died back in like the 17, he died in 1778. He had a famous statement before he died. Y'all know what he said? He said, within 100 years, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Excuse me, who's the one who's forgotten now? <laughs> because this Voltaire guy died a couple hundred years ago and nobody even knows his name. You know, irony of ironies, when this Voltaire guy, when he died, they auctioned off his estate and his house was auctioned off. And you know who ended up buying his house? You know what his house is to this day? It is the headquarters of the French Bible Society. <laughs> God has his way. 
Things come and go, but the word of the Lord endures forever. If the Bible was not the word of God, if it was not God-breathed, it would not be alive today. And the only thing that has kept it alive is the fact that it is true, and it is accurate, and it is God-breathed every single page of Scripture. I want to break it down into three areas, okay? And we could spend, we could spend weeks on this, but I'm going to just try to get this as concise as I can. Three ways that you can know that you can trust the Bible as the Word of God. Number one is the Bible is textually reliable. The Bible is textually reliable. Meaning, what it, sa it says, this was written by a guy named Matthew. How do I know it was written by Matthew? This was says written by a guy named Paul. How do I know it was written by Paul? The Bible is textually reliable in that it is written by who it says it is written by. And we are going to take the Bible through the same standards. Here's the key. If you apply the same standards that you apply to every other book that's ever written, the Bible surpasses and exceeds the reliability test far and away. Far and away. The problem is people want to hold the Bible to a higher standard. There's always two standards of proof in life. There's a scientific proof and then a legal proof. What's the difference? If you're a scientist, what's the only way to prove something is accurate? To recreate it. Okay, the only way that you can prove this is true is to go into a lab, put it together, and recreate it. Can you recreate, can you prove scientifically that Matthew's pen is the one who wrote this? No. But there's many things in life that you can't prove that way. The legal proof, if I go to a court and I need to prove something, I don't need to recreate it. I just need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this is what happened. And now you'll never be able to get everything 100% because if somebody has an agenda... And they want to say, no, it could have been this. And Matthew could have been uh, brainwashed by aliens. And then someone could have taken over his body and ripped off. You could say whatever you want. No one can recreate it. But what I'm saying is, let's look at how other books in history are deemed reliable and deemed accurate. You'll see the Bible blows them away. For example, how was the Bible copied? Now I'm talking about the Old Testament. We'll get to the New Testament in a little bit. The Old Testament. The Old Testament, a guy named Jeremiah sat down. He wrote some stuff. Okay, obviously we don't have his original writing right now, but we have someone copied it, and then someone copied that, and someone copied that, and copy, 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 copy. The Old Testament was copied by people called scribes. Scribes were better than a Xerox machine. Better and more accurate than a Xerox machine. You know why? Because a scribe, the word scribe literally means like to count. Scribes were not transcribing books. They weren't, they weren't copying books. They weren't even copying paragraphs. They weren't even copying sentences. They weren't even copying words. You know what scribes are doing? Letter by letter. If you look at the list of rules that the scribes had to do to copy one page of scripture, they didn't write words. They wrote letters. And what I mean by that is the scribe piece of paper. Actually, I got a picture of it right here. A scribe's piece of paper was not written, as you see, it's not written in words. The columns were, had to be precise exact same length, same number across every page, and they had to be exactly 30 letters wide. And what the scribes would do is copy one letter at a time, A, and then B, and then C, not like a man, and then girl, and then not letter, not word, but letter at a time. And the scribes, because they did it this way, they could easily, the way they would check it, they would so get, go to, um, you know, the page or what it was called, the... Uh, escapes me right now, the page, okay, page 77, column four, 
letter six. And they would check it. And if it wasn't what it was supposed to be, what would they do? What would they do? Throw the whole thing away. The scribes knew. Okay, every letter in the Greek alphabet, let's say, I'm going to say it in English, but whatever. The, the, the A, the A letter. This book should have 1,374 A's. And it should have, you know, 718 B's. And if they found, I said 718 B's. If they found 717 B's, they wouldn't go see where it's missing. You know what they do? Throw the whole thing away and start over. The scribes, to the point, they knew the middle letter, the middle letter of every book in the Bible. You could ask them, and they would say, the middle of the book of Genesis is a D. And the middle of the book of Exodus is an F, or whatever it may be. And they would do is they would go to that middle letter, and then they would count in both directions. And if the exact, it wasn't the exact number of letters, threw the whole thing away. That's a pretty high standard of accuracy. And that accuracy was put to the test in the year 1947. Y'all know what happened in 1947? A big thing you may have heard of, you may not understand, something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't want to get into all that is, but basically what it is, is some dumb shepherd guy in Palestine walking down the street or walking down the thing, and he's on a mountain, and he goes in a cave, and somehow he unlocks one of the greatest mysteries of all time. He finds writings. He finds, I think it was um, over 900. I don't have the number in front of me. However many it was, texts from the Old Testament scriptures. He found every single book of the Old Testament, except one, book of Esther, written. And then when they found that text, they dated it, and it dated back to 900 B.C. And why that's very important, I'm sorry, 100 B.C. Why that's important? Because the earliest manuscript before that, this was 100 B.C., the earliest before was 900 A.D. So the earliest account they had of Genesis was written in the year 900. Okay, in Exodus, whatever, 900 was the earliest. He found stuff written from 100 B.C. Why is that important? Because now we could test. Let's test the accuracy of these scribes. Here you have a 1,000-year gap. That's huge. Let's see what deviation took place from 100 B.C. to 900 A.D. That's a 1,000-year gap. Man, if we're playing the game of telephone, and I say, like, you know, um, you know uh, Jill likes cheese, okay? And I'm talking about playing that game for 1,000 years. What is it going to look like at the end? It's not looking anything like it. But I'm saying they played this game for 1,000 years. How much discrepancy was there? You want to guess a percentage? 5% discrepancy. And you say, hey, wait a minute. First of all, 5%, that blows everything else out of the water. But you say, hey, wait a minute, I'm, not, I'm still kind of concerned about that 5%. That could be a big 5%. Do you want to know? 98% of the 5% was what? Spelling of names and places. When you take out the spelling, like, you know, it could be, you know, James with a G versus a J. I don't know. They spelled names and places. If you take out those, you want to know the discrepancy from 1,000 years? was less than half a percent. <laughs> less than one half a percent over 1,000 years. People, scribes were better. A Xerox machine would have a higher rate of, of, of error than these scribes had in this 1,000 years. Why? Because that's the word of God. That's God breathed. And these people took such great care. How about the New Testament? The New Testament is the one that's usually attacked more than the Old Testament. Because New Testament people say, this is a very common thing that you hear, I love Jesus, Jesus was the best, Jesus had the best teachings, but the church changed what he said, right? That's what you say. People like you, people, talk, people like you, changed what Jesus said. And this Paul character, he changed the original Gospels. Okay, let's, 
let's examine it. How do you examine the accuracy? Let's compare the New Testament other historical documents. The key here is examining the New Testament manuscripts versus other documents in their manuscript. What's a manuscript? When I say manuscript, when, his, when people talk about manuscripts, they talk about writings from the same era in the original language. So I find a, the New Testament is written in Greek. So I don't find a English version or a Russian version because, no, I find a Greek version written from the same time period, same era. If you look at other works of history, all right, like you have right up there, I just a few, for example, Plato. The time gap between the earliest found manuscript and when the actual writing was 1,300 years, and they found seven manuscripts. I don't know one person who questions Plato's writings. Homer's Iliad, 400 years, 600. You see the numbers right there in front of you. No one has more than six. Homer's Iliad is the highest with 643 original manuscripts, and they're 400 years, and nobody says anything. That's, if, if you got 643 from that time, you say that's accurate. How about the New Testament? How many? Anybody want to guess? You find original manuscripts of the New Testament, every single book, written within 50 years. And how many? Not one. Not two. Not 100. Not 500. Not 1,000. Mr. Homer got to 643, and nobody says nothing about his writings. The Bible got to 5,700. Do you know what it means to say that the Bible is not accurate? Do you know what it means to say that this book here is not accurate? It means to say that the entire world has no brain. Is what it means. Because I'm telling you, you got 5,700 of these copies from that time period. And you're saying that Christians, the church, and realize that for the first however many years of Christianity, Christianity had no power. It wasn't like they had political influence, not like they were rulers. You're saying these people who had no political power, had no ability to do anything, got all 5,700 of these copies together and changed them all uniformly. Changed them all to say the exact same thing. And in, in a way that nobody, all the Christians and the Jews just, uh, just had their eyes closed. And nobody noticed. And especially, you want to make it even worse? I said 5,700 original language manuscripts. As soon as Jesus ascended up to heaven, and then the disciples started going to different lang lands, the first thing they did is they started to translate a lot of the stuff. So you had it in, in, in different languages. So when you add in all those other languages, you had more than 20,000 copies of the New Testament floating around. And you tell me that the church got all these copies together and change them all in the exact same way, the only way I can believe that is that I have to believe that every other piece of writing in all of history is inaccurate as well. And no one with a brain would say that. The Bible is historically, textually reliable. Only person who would say opposite is a person who has an agenda to prove otherwise. But someone who's rational would never say it. Okay, number two now. And this is the part that I'm going to get some of you. Some of you are not going to... It'd be a tough one. The Bible, listen to this, is scientifically advanced. Now you say, hold your horse. Hold your horse. Hold your horse. Everyone knows, everyone knows what dumb people say. Everyone knows that the Bible has lots of inaccuracies. That the Bible scientifically doesn't match science. The Bible and science don't match. Do you know anyone who would say this? has one of two things. Number one, they never read the Bible. Or number two, they don't know a lick about science. You will never find an honest person who has read the scripture 
who knows what science is to say that because it's the most ignorant statement that you can make. Because the truth of the matter is God created science. Okay, because all science is is the study of God's laws. God creates gravity, and then science says, hey, we discovered gravity. And God says, hey, good, good for you. That's really good. You're really smart. Hey, we found a star. Hey, hey, that was great. A famous mathematician, name was Kepler. Y'all may have heard him, Kepler, Johannes Kepler, said science is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. I love that. Science is simply thinking God, God's thoughts after him. Because the truth of the matter is God knows the truth, and then God reveals it. And science eventually figures a lot of stuff out. But what you'll find is that God was revealing stuff to people. And this, like I said, this inspiration time when people were inspired, God was revealing stuff that science was years and years and years away from figuring out. I'll give you a few examples. Now, I got lots of examples, but I'll try to keep it to a, a few here. But believe me, I can go on all day about this. I'll give you one example. Back in the day, people didn't understand how the earth, like, was stood. They thought the earth was on top of something. Because logic says, if I'm standing here, there has to be something underneath me. Logic says that. And every culture of the world had a different belief. If you were Greek, how was the world held up? On top of a great god. You know the name of the god? Atlas. Okay, if you were Greek, you knew it was a fact. All the scientists told you there was a guy named Atlas. He was big and strong. He held up the world on his back. If you were Egyptian, you know how the earth was held up? They believed it was held up on five pillars. Okay, and they had names for these pillars. And they had a whole, all the, all the smartest people in the world were the Egyptians. They had this science which said that the world was on pillars. And if someone would come and say, I don't think the earth is on pillars, they'd say, you're so simple-minded. You're so foolish. You're so Bible-believing. Don't you know the earth is on pillars? India, the Hindus, those people, their ancestors, they had the most creative of how the world was, was hung. I'm not making this stuff up. You can look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> the earth, the earth stood on the back of a giant elephant. I'm not making it up. And then, and then when the elephant moved, that was what earthquakes were and thunders and stuff like that. Okay, what did the elephant stand on? Easy. The elephant stood on the back of a giant sea turtle. I'm not making this up. Okay, what did the sea turtle stand on? Easy on top of a giant sea serpent who swam through the cosmic sea. So you had us, top of an elephant, top of a, what I say, turtle, on top of a, a serpent. Logic. And someone says, you know, I think the earth was just kind of hung by God. And they'd say, what? They'd say, you simple-minded, you foolish person. Job, chapter 26, verse 7. You know, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Job, like Genesis, speaks about the earliest times, speaks about creation, but Genesis was written by Moses. Okay, Job predates. So the oldest writing in the world, the oldest writing in the world is Job. And look what Job says in Job 26. He says, speaking about God, God stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Job, you're so simple-minded. You don't understand science. Science says the, the turtle... And then the, 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 the serpent thing. You're so foolish. How did Job know this? Easy. He was inspired by God. Because the Bible is scientifically advanced. 
Another word, piece of scripture. Isaiah 40, verse 22. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years before Mr. Christopher Columbus and all the people who discovered that the earth was round. Everyone thought the earth was flat. And they used to do what? To you, um, what's his name? Galileo, right? Or Copernicus. Both of those guys used to say that the earth is round and everybody, including the church, said, you're crazy. The earth is round. What do you mean it's round? Clearly it's flat. And Isaiah said this thousands of years before that. He said, it's he who sits above the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. How he knew this? I thought the Bible was for simple people. I thought the Bible was for foolish people. Want to know the truth right now? Want to know the truth? And this one, if you are like a science person, if you're an honest person, you agree with 100% what I say. But if you've got an agenda, you're going to hate what I'm about to say. If you have an agenda, you're going to hate what I'm about to say. But this is the truth. The truth of the matter is, truth never changes, but science changes every year. Truth never changes. Science is constantly changing. Because I could find you a ton of scientists who however many thousands of years ago said the earth is flat and they would have sworn their life on it. How can I say science changes? Isn't something true when science proves it? Look, this is the biggest misconception about science. Science is a bunch of theories, which is good. I'm all for it. I, I, I believe, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying it in a bad way. But we have to understand there's a lot of things that science contradicts itself. For example, I'll give you three examples from my own personal life. Number one is when we had a child, okay, the thing they all told us is you have to breastfeed the child. You have to breastfeed the child. You have to breastfeed the child. It's the most important thing, and the nutrients are healthy, all this kind of stuff. Parents who have kids my age, when you, were, when you, when, when you had children, did you breastfeed your children? No. You know why? Because you were told it's bad for them. And science used to say, no, the worst thing you do is breastfeed the child. No, give them the formula, and the formula, the formula. And then science said, uh, change your mind. Let's go to the breastfeed, the breastfeed, the breastfeed. And the same thing that was good for you is now bad for you. Another example. When we were kids, you got hit in the face with a ball, something like that, your nose started to bleed. How'd you solve it? You pinched, and you leaned back. Because that's what science said. Now what does science say? Don't lean back. Lean forward. I'm like, but I spent my whole life leaning back. And they say, no, it'll cause brain damage and stuff like that. And then that's it is. But science, but science, the worst one of all, this one, I'm still bitter to this day. I have something called reflux. Okay, that's the in me. You know what I'm saying? The stuff that comes up and then it goes back down. When we were kids, they didn't call it reflux. You know what they told me? They told me I was allergic to something. You know what they said? I was allergic to chocolate. And my mom just said, yeah, she should feel guilty because I spent my whole life thinking that I was allergic to chocolate. I'm just joking, mom. <laughs> I spent my whole life thinking I was allergic to chocolate, and it wasn't until that my kid, this is a few years ago, went to the doctor, and he said he's got reflux. And I was like, what's that? And he said, you have it. And I'm like, no, I don't know what that is. And he said, I bet you, when you were young, did they tell you you were allergic to chocolate? I said, yes, they did. <laughs> I've been bitter about it my whole life. I didn't obey it. I've been eating chocolate the whole time. But I'm saying, because they didn't understand it. So they said, the problem of the reason is because you can't eat chocolate. And science said, don't eat chocolate. But now science saying, eat all the chocolate you want, doesn't make a difference. Because science changes. I guarantee you that there, I can find you 10 things today. You go online, I can find you 10 things today that people, are, that people used to say is good for you, that now they tell you causes cancer, right? You find 10 things today, which said sometime someone said, this is the way to go, and now they tell you it causes cancer, it kill you. Bottom line is, anyone who says science knows everything, is garbage. Si a true scientist would never say that. 
A true scientist says, this is what we've discovered, but we know that we as science is constantly evolving, constantly changing. And what we thought was true a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, we disproved. And then 200 years ago, we disproved that. And then 100 years ago, we found something new. And then we know that science is constantly evolving. And anyone who says otherwise is not a true scientist or not a person who is neutral, is a person who has an agenda. True fact. In the Louvre, you know the Louvre, like that big museum in France, okay? They have a section of obsolete science books. How big is that section? They say if you stacked up all the books in the Louvre that are obsolete science books, you could stretch a line three and a half miles long. Three and a half miles long of stuff that at some point in time someone said, this is fact. And then later on someone comes and said, uh, no, it's not. The truth is this. Because science is constantly changing. The truth of God abides forever. Give you another example. I'll give you a funny example here. For the longest time, scientists thought that the stars in the heavens, they thought there was a finite number of stars. And they thought, you know, you see this many, and there's a few over there, that are kind of, but there's a number of stars, and you could count them. So one guy, his name was Hipparchus, the year 150 B.C. decided get his pen and paper and count the number of stars. And he came to the conclusion that there are 1,200, oh, I'm sorry, 1,022 stars in the sky. 1022. And that was published in a famous dissertation. And everyone said, here is science has discovered there are 1,022 stars. And anyone who says anything otherwise is an idiot and should be cast to the outer darkness because he doesn't know that science says this. 300 years later, a guy named Ptolemy came along. And Ptolemy said, Hipparchus is a nut. He said, there's not 1,022 stars. He said, there's 1,026 stars. He found four more in the corner. And he says, anybody who subscribes to the heresy of Hipparchus and 1,022 stars is a nut and is denying the facts of science and logic and reason. And what do we know today? Today we don't discover a star here and there. We discover galaxies. We discover solar systems. Man, it'd have been nice if someone had just told us that a long time ago. It'd have been nice if someone just came around a long time ago and just said that there's a lot of stars. Oh, Jeremiah 33, 22. All the hosts of the heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured. So I'll multiply the descendants of David. Don't worry about the rest of them. Jeremiah said this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before that you cannot count the number of stars. Another example. This one, personal. Recently, I was reading the story. I was reading, I'm reading the Old Testament, and I'm reading in the book of Leviticus. So I'm reading about a lot of, like, the laws. And the law I was reading about that particular day, this is earlier this week, was about when they used to quarantine people who were sick. And God says, this person has this sickness. You put him far away. And the reason why... I think it was a God thing, okay? So I'm saying you have to read the scripture every day. I just, I have, I have strep throat, okay? But I'm okay now. I'm not contagious. But at the time, I was contagious, okay? And then I was trying to decide whether to go to this thing. Like we had this like a family night playing with the kids and stuff like that and with other kids. And I was trying to decide. And the Bible said, if you're sick, seven days away. So I told Marianne, I'm off tonight for the next seven days. But it didn't really seven days but because now there's medicine. But anyway, the point is, the point is, is wouldn't it be nice if this, this scripture right here, Leviticus 13.4, it says, if a shiny spot on the skin is white, but does not appear to be more than skin deep, 
and their hair in it has not turned white, the priest is to isolate the affected person for seven days. Basically saying, if this person has this sickness and they got this stuff, tell the person to go hang out for seven days by himself. And then they came back after seven days, and on the seventh day, the priest examines them, and if he sees that the sword's unchanged, has not spread, isolate them another seven days. You know back in like the 14 and 1500s, y'all have heard of something called the bubonic plague? Bubonic plague. Go look it up online. It's the saddest period in the history of the world. Do you know that in Europe, one-fourth of the population of Europe was killed by the bubonic plague? And you know it is 100% preventable. But you know the problem? Science didn't understand this. They didn't understand germs and contagious and infectious things. And they just thought people were just dropping dead. And they would put them in the hospital, and they put a healthy person and a sick person right here, and they say, oh, no, this person dropped dead too. And they were just putting people together. People were dropping like flies. Because science didn't understand what God wrote thousands and thousands and thousands thousands of years aboard before that. Again, I'm not saying that the Bible is a science book. I'm not saying it like that. Because we don't go to the Bible for science. It's a spiritual book. But what I am saying is, is that we know it is accurate. It is God-breathed because people knew thousands and thousands of years stuff way before science. And the only person who would disagree is someone who has an agenda to prove. Psalm 12, verse 6 says that the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. So we know that it is textually reliable. It is what it says. It is. We know that it is scientifically advanced, not only scientifically accurate, scientifically advanced, way ahead of its time. And then number three, the one that puts it over the top, cannot be denied, that it is prophetically divine. It is prophetically divine. You go in the Old Testament and you see prophecy after prophecy fulfilled to an exact detail. No book, no human can know that information unless it was inspired, breathed by God. For example, once upon a time there was a guy, his name was Peter Stoner. And Professor Peter Stoner, who was a believer, wanted to do some statistical analysis on the prophecies of the Old Testament relating to the person of Christ. Okay, the Old Testament has many prophecies about many things. He said, I want to get about Christ. Okay, and there's so many prophecies about where he'd be born and when he'd be born and what kind of uh, place he'd be born in and how he would die and all these kinds of things about the person of Christ himself. And he accumulated the 48 major prophecies. 48 major prophecies. There's hundreds of them, but the 48 big ones, like born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, whatever, whatever, whatever. And he wanted to know the odds, statistically, that someone could fulfill just eight of these 48. 48 that Christ fulfilled? How about just eight, these selection of eight? What are the chances that somebody would just randomly fulfill this born in Bethlehem and of this tribe, just eight of these? Anyone want to know the statistics? Let's do some math. To fulfill eight out of the 48 prophecies, the statistical number is one in 100 million billion. You got that? That's a one with 17 zeros after it. One in 100, I'm sorry, one in one million billion is the likelihood that anyone would just randomly fulfill eight of these prophecies. So what does that mean? Put that in, I'll put that in perspective for you. 
This is my business card. Okay? I'm going to take this business card. I'm going to fold it in half. So it's roughly a square. Roughly 1.5 by 1.5 inches. Okay? Let's say I take a business card like this, and I take many business cards like this. I make a big old stack. Now on one card, I put a little gold sticker. And then I start to spread out these business cards all over this room. And I cover every inch of this room. One of them has a gold sticker. But all over this room, I cover it with this. And in fact, not just this room. All of this school. And in fact, not just all this school. All of Arlington, all of Fairfax County, all of Virginia, all the United States of America, all of North America, every dry piece of land on this earth. I fill it with business cards this size, and one of them has a little gold sticker on the underside, and you walk the earth for as long as you want. You bend down one time, you pick up one card. What is the chance that you will pick up the gold star business card? One in a hundred million billion. Those are pretty good odds. Okay, but that's nothing. He went further. He said, how about all 48? That was one in a hundred million billion? was just eight. How about all 48? He gave us a number. Y'all ready? That's one in a trillion, 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 trillion. Thirteen trillions. One in a trillion, 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 that all 48 of these prophecies would be fulfilled. That's a one, in case you're doing the math at home. That's a one with 157 zeros after it. And Christ fulfilled every single one of those. Okay, put that in perspective. If the million billion was this, now we're not taking a business card. Now I want to take something called an atom. Y'all know what an atom is? An atom? I could take a million atoms as what it takes to go the length of a hair. Okay, a hair has millions of atoms. One atom. In this entire galaxy that we live in, and I put on one of those atoms, I spray paint it red, and I don't tell anybody. And you get in your little Mr. Jetson spaceship, and you float around the universe to every square inch of this galaxy, and you stick your hand out to grab one atom at one point in time. What is the likelihood you'll pull the red nose, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer atom? One in a trillion, 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 thirteen times. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of those. Imagine I got a business deal for you. And I say, you know what? I got a secret deal for you. If this works, you can be the richest man in the world. If it doesn't work, you lose everything. And I hand you a document. A document. And I say, if this is true, you can be the richest person in the world. Now, if it's not true, you lose everything. Okay, what are the odds that this isn't true? The odds are one in a trillion, 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 trillion. Anybody think twice about that option? I got a business deal that the one in the trillion, the 13, that's the likelihood that it fails. Anybody don't like those odds? Anyone who knows anything about math, when you get to this level of ridiculousness statistics, you don't even speak about odds. You say, it is certifiably impossible. To maintain your belief that the Bible is not the word of God 
it is statistically impossible. That's why, I uh, believe me, I always say it takes more faith to not believe in the Bible than it takes to believe in it. You have to have a lot of faith to not believe in the Bible. Because the, fa the history, the science, and the prophecies all say that this is the God-breathed word of God. But it doesn't make a difference if you don't believe it. I'm going to challenge every single person that you do not anymore approach this book as a book. This book is the authority of my life. This book, like I said, has the map to the most successful plan in the world. This is not a book. This is the word of God. Here's the problem. Some people don't believe it's the word of God. And they seem to be doing fine. They seem to say, you know, doesn't make a difference in my life. Let me give you this example. Let's say somebody doesn't believe in gravity. Let's say I don't believe in gravity. I say, you know what? I don't believe in gravity. I go straight to the top of the Empire State Building and say, watch, I don't believe in gravity. And I jump off, straight off the top. And then somehow, I'm, let's say I got this mic on and I'm mic'd up, and I'm floating down to my death. And I'm falling through the sky. And somebody sticks their head out the window and says, hey, how's it going, Father Anthony? And I say, so far, so good. Enjoying life. Told you I didn't believe in gravity. Everything is fine. Everything is peachy keen. That's how many people live their lives today. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe what it says. I don't believe that everything it says is going to come true. I'm fine. You going to bank on the fact that you're not going to hit the ground at some point in time? You're going to bank on the fact that you're going to be floating through, through, through space forever? Because I tell you, the likelihood of you floating through space forever, not hitting the ground, that's about one in a trillion, 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 trillion. But good luck. St. Augustine once said this. He said, if you believe in the Bible what you like, and you don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible you trust, but yourself. The goal of this series will be to learn how to understand the Bible, how to study the Bible, how to apply the Bible. But none of that stuff matters if you are not 100% convinced that the Bible is the word of God. It is breathed by God. When you read its words, you are not reading words. You are listening to the breath of God coming through the vocal cords of writers from the first century B.C. all the way, or yeah, from the, the earliest time B.C. to the earliest time, or to the year 100 A.D. You are listening to the voice of God coming through shepherds and through fishermen and through kings and through prophets. And you are hearing God's breath right in front of you in a way that you can comprehend. God likes to work in tangible ways. That's why he took flesh and became a man. Well, that's why also he gave us his word so that we could have him in a comprehensible way. What we're going to do every week in this series, I'm going to challenge you to memorize a verse from the Bible. All right. And our theme verse is the verse that we want to get to, but I want to start actually with not the theme verse. I want to start with Matthew 4.4 4 because it's easier and we get some momentum going. So everyone is going to memorize Matthew 4.4. 4. It's real simple. It's real easy. It says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I want to challenge you to memorize it, to remind yourself of it, and to every single day make sure that you do not let one day pass that you do not feed your soul with the inspired 
word of God, which is the Bible. Let's stand together and pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for your word, which you gave to us, to lead us closer to you, to reveal to us how to relate to you, to be like the authority of our lives. Thank you that you don't leave us alone and confused, but you gave us your word to guide us through life, to sift through the confusion and the chaos. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to read your word, to understand your word, to apply your word, and most of all, to obey your word as the ultimate authority of our lives. Help every single person who's here, Lord, to understand your word a little bit more clearly and to find you inside it every time they open it. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Have a great week, guys.